interview and it's a great pleasure to introduce my very distinguished guest today General Sir Richard Dannett former Army Chief of General Staff. General Dannett warm welcome indeed to the Isle of Man to Manx Radio and of course to the program. Well Geraldine thank you very much indeed and it's a great pleasure to be here and as I said when we met it is the first time I've been to the Isle of Man so it's a double pleasure. It's a double welcome mm. indeed. I hope you'll come back soon and bring your lovely wife with you the next time. Well, I hope so. I think I'm doing a reconnaissance, so I shall report back. And uh, what I've seen so far, I think, is most attractive, so I shall report back very favourably. Well, now, you have had a much-respected career in the armed forces, having won a military cross at the age of 23 and having narrowly escaped death three times. You commanded at all levels before being appointed Chief of the General Staff. Your early army career began when you were commissioned into the Green Howard's Regiment in 1971. Do you come from a military army family background? No, I don't. Um, it, it, my father and my grandfather fought in the First and the Second World War, but otherwise um, my family origins going several generations back are, are farmers, although my father and his father were younger sons and were both architects. And... My, my ambition at school was to go to Cambridge, read law and be a barrister. And so it was quite surprising that I, in the end, I became a soldier. But um, the aspiration to go to Cambridge and read law didn't quite work out. So the other thing I rather hankered after doing was being a soldier. So it wasn't to Cambridge, but to Sandhurst, and I went in September 1969. And you never looked back, as they say. Well, it's interesting one says that. I intended to stay in the army for three years. In the end, I stayed for 40 years, uh, probably because I enjoyed it and felt it was the right thing to do. But um, it's one of those careers that, quite rightly, I think, from time to time, you should assess what you're doing and ask yourself, is this still for me? Is this still what I want to be doing? Um, and I did that on two or three occasions during my career and always came to the conclusion, yep, this is what I'm enjoying, this is what I think is worthwhile, so I shall stay. Of course, you had a son who followed your footsteps into the Army of the Grenadiers, I believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, my middle son, Bertie, uh, he had five years in the army, which he thoroughly enjoyed. He thought about joining my regiment, but uh, he said at the time, um, Dad, the regiment's quite small, and you're quite senior, and you're still serving. I think I'll go my own way. And he joined his grandfather's regiment. Uh, my grandfather, my wife's father, that was a grenadier, and uh, he served for five years. He did two tours in Iraq and a tour in Afghanistan agonised about whether to stay or whether to go, and then he decided to leave. Yeah. And how did that sort of fit in with your role, of course? Well, it was Were interesting. Were you concerned? Uh, yes, I was concerned. Did you show that concern? Well, um, that's a very good question. Uh, during his first two tours in Iraq, I was the commander-in-chief, and interestingly, he had volunteered to go to Iraq the first time uh, with the parachute regiment. He should never volunteer. He learned that lesson. Um, he volunteered to go with the parachute regiment. And then as commander-in-chief, I had to find another battalion to increase the force level there. And the only battalion available was the Grenadier Guards. So um, we had to send the Grenadier Guards. So Bertie, no sooner had he finished in Iraq with the parachute regiment, um, took 10 days leave, turned around and went back with the Grenadiers. Now, just before we move away entirely 
from, from your background. I did say at the top of the programme, Sir Richard, that you were awarded the Military Cross, I think that was in 1973, and I wondered, was this during a Northern Ireland spell of duty? Yes, it was. Um, I mean, I commissioned in, in uh, July 1971, um, really right at the start, effectively, of the difficult times in, in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, internment, if you remember, internment without trial was on the 9th of August uh, 1971, and I joined my battalion on the 14th of August, um, just five days after that. And indeed, in the 70s, uh, 1977 was the only year I did not serve uh, in Northern Ireland. So uh, one had quite a lot of experience uh, and quite a lot of time in Northern Ireland over that period. And the events um, relating to my military cross um, arose from the second tour that I did uh, over the winter, 72, 73. Um, when the troubles were at their zenith. Yes, I mean, they, they peaked at several times. Of course, 71, 72 was, was a particularly difficult period, uh, internment. And then, of course, uh, Bloody Sunday, which quite recently the Savile Report has, has or Savile Inquiry has just reported, that was in January 1972, followed by Operation Motorman, which was a very large operation, 24,000 soldiers involved, uh, to clear the no-go areas in Londonderry and Belfast. Uh, and then we were back uh, in, in Belfast, uh, late 72, early 73. So they were difficult times, interesting times, challenging times. Um, but, of course, like all situations like that, it brings the best and the worst out in people. Well, was there a particular incident for which you were awarded the Military Cross? Yes, there was um, a particular incident uh, on a particular day. Um, but uh, my whole platoon and the whole company I was attached to had a very difficult day. Um, a sergeant was awarded the Military Medal um, that day and I was awarded the Military Cross. But really, most of the members of that company, and certainly my platoon, did extremely well that day and probably all should have been given something. Would I be right in saying that an infantry officer is ideally suited to be the chief of general staff? Infantry well, officer in particular. I think an infantry officer um, has to lead um, on his feet and with, his quick, and with quick wits. Um, I think that said, I think all the teeth arm officers have that kind of experience, by which I mean... The infantry, yes, but I think the armoured corps, those operating tanks and armoured cars, uh, and to an extent the gunners and the sappers, who are really in the sort of the forefront of fighting, where you've got to make quick decisions, where leadership is really very much a paramount uh, capability and characteristic. And therefore you're used to assessing situations, you're used to taking decisions, and you're used to giving leadership. So probably um, those in the teeth arms, and the infantry in particular, probably by way of their background, are, are best prepared. But I'm a little bit careful in case any of your listeners um, disagree with me, having had distinguished careers in other parts of the armed forces. Now, uh, I introduced you correctly at the top of the programme as the former Chief of General Staff, mm. but it was expected that you would become the Chief of the General Defence Staff. Well, um, I'm not sure about that. I mean, by usual practice, um, one of the three heads of the single services, the Chief of the Naval Staff, usually called the First Sea Lord, or the Chief of the General Staff, the head of the Army, which I was, or the Chief of the Air Staff, head of the Royal Air Force. One of those three is normally chosen to become the Chief of the Defence Staff. It used to be done on what was rather pejoratively called Buggins' turn, done on, on rotation. Um, but uh, in the last 15 years or so, it's moved to a system of best man for the job. But unusually, the, the last government chose not to ask any of the three of us who were single-service Chiefs of Staff we all retired last year in 2009, and the present incumbent, um, Sir Jock Stirrup, 
the former head of the Air Force, uh, has been extended for the better part of five years. Uh, unusual decision, but that's what the government wanted to do, and that's what it's done. Well, now, although highly respected and even much-loved Chief of General Staff, you paid a substantial price for speaking out against the Labour Party's use of the British Army in Iraq and the provision of equipment, etc., especially during this Afghanistan campaign. Well, talking of leadership in turbulent times, the pressure must have been quite daunting, relentless even. Well, uh, that is absolutely correct. Um, I think one has to just be quite clear about the overall background as to why I became outspoken in 2006. Um, just to be brief, from the defence review that the last government had back in 97-98, the army was structured to conduct one major operation and a series of small ones. And we were doing that in Iraq from, from 2003. Decision was made in 2004 that in 2006 we would make a major intervention in southern Afghanistan. The thinking at the time being that by 2006 we would have substantially withdrawn from Iraq. But the situation changed in Iraq and through 2005 and 2006 it became more difficult. And instead of just being down to a thousand soldiers in 2006 in Iraq, we were at about eight or nine thousand in Iraq. Yet we were still committed to putting a major force into southern Afghanistan. So Organised for one operation, we found ourselves conducting two major operations, and that really put the pressure on. Um, at the time, I talked about it as running hot. And that's fine. An organisation like the Army can run hot, provided it's sufficiently and well-resourced. And uh, I didn't feel that we were at the time, or that we were getting the support that we needed. And it was an urgent issue. Uh, I discussed it at length with Des Brown, the then Secretary of State for Defence. Indeed, I'd written him a long letter outlining my concerns including my ability or freedom to talk publicly about these issues, which he was quite content with. Um, and then, a month or so, a couple of months later, uh, that's what I did. Uh, and it was important that I did, because the soldiers knew we were under pressure. They knew that things were, 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 were squeezing and, and, and it was hurting. But they also needed to know that I knew and I was doing something about it. Yes, of course, I was arguing the case internally within the Ministry of Defence and with the government, but they needed to know that I understood and that they could have confidence in my leadership. So it was a multifaceted thing. Uh, it was um, provocative. Um, I think in the long term it was successful. But um, it's not something I would advocate everyone doing unless they were really under severe pressure, which I think at the time we were. Well, now, just a little reminder here, you are listening to the Geraldine Jameson interview on Manx Radio, and my distinguished guest today is General Sir Richard Dannett, former Chief of General Staff. Um, regardless of personnel training to the nth degree, Sir Richard, these are really young servicemen away from home and loved ones, facing the probability of death on a daily basis, and somehow they have to conquer their own fears. It's the all-important family connection that underpins the nation and the monarch that they serve, isn't it? You're right, and certainly the army, um, particularly for those of our youngsters that come into it from less fortunate backgrounds or from broken homes, the army provides family. And of course the tribal nature of the army and its regiments, those regiments are our families as well. And that's really quite an important thing um, for which people appreciate and for people to understand. But of course going on beyond that, we also have six core values. 
that are really important. And we, we formally educate and train our people in these values, um, selfless commitment, uh, discipline, loyalty, integrity, courage, and respect for others. And it's really important that they form a, a moral baseline, which if you put the notion of a family um, and a sound moral baseline, then you've got really quite a good structure in which you can take a disciplined force forward. And that's one of the significant strengths of the army at the present time. And without it, I think we would struggle uh, in the difficult circumstances of Iraq and the very difficult circumstances now of Afghanistan. Well, you are known as a soldier's general, a really great CGS, always considering what is best for the soldiers of all ranks, such things as food and accommodation, not just the single soldier, but married quarters back at base, continually fighting your corner for better pay and conditions, and most importantly, of course, the necessary equipment. Well, that's right. And this all has to be seen in the context of what is now quite widely understood, this thing, informal thing called the military covenant. And it's, it's a loose covenant between the nation and its armed forces. And it's important that it's kept in balance. Where we were in 2005, 2006, we were doing a lot of work, operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, plus some other smaller things elsewhere around the world. We don't complain about doing a lot of work, Provided, on the other hand, of the, on the other side of the balance, uh, we can look after the legitimate needs of our individuals and their families. So when the thing is in balance, a lot of work, but properly looking after our individuals, then we can run hot. It's a bit like having sufficient oil running around the engine of a, of a motor car or a motorbike. It can go fast, provided it's kept, um, it's, it's kept well oiled. And we needed, therefore, to ensure that things, and you referred to them like pay was appropriate, that we were doing something about the less good accommodation for families and soldiers, and critically, their equipment, because soldiers are proud professionals. They want to do a good job, but they want to have the right kit in their hands to do that job. So we needed to put pressure on all those areas. And I think, I think over a period of two or three years, we, we managed to do that, to an extent. Still some way to go. It's a huge area to be covered. Now, am I right in, in saying here, I hope I've got the uh, juxtaposition correct, there used to be, say, a dozen casualties in the whole of a six-month tour, and now you're getting about a dozen casualties a week. The middle of June was a particularly difficult time, and there was one particular week in June when we lost four soldiers tragically drowned inside an armoured vehicle, and, of course, that made the numbers go up. But your general point is right. Um, since um, the middle of 2007 in Afghanistan, the number of casualties there uh, has, has increased. That's a measure of the intensity of the opposition that we are facing, because the Taliban know that Helmand and southern Afghanistan is critical territory to contest. And it has to be seen in the widest context, and we've also got to put it back in the context of Iraq. Um, Iraq was an operation that the government of the day thought was important, but Afghanistan was always really critical. It was, after all, from Afghanistan, the ungoverned space of Afghanistan, that Al-Qaeda, having set up its training camps in the past, was able to export violence to the West, most notably, most obviously on 9-11, to Washington and, and, and New York in, in 2001. So it's really critical that um, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda is exposed for what it is, and Afghanistan is secured sufficiently so that it can't become ungoverned space or a failed state again, into which Al-Qaeda could return. So. If Iraq was important, and that can be debated, Afghanistan has always been really important. And go back, if you like, to 2006, 
why I was on the record as saying we need to get out of Iraq sometime soon. Yes, we did, because we need to concentrate our efforts in Afghanistan, which actually was the main effort and much more important. Well, the Russians, who are totally ruthless, and they couldn't win. Well, we're not trying to win either. Um, people often say to me, come on, General, don't you do your military history? The British have lost three times in Afghanistan before. Why do you think you can win this fourth time? And that's really the wrong question or the, or the wrong notion. We're not fighting the Afghans. Uh, we are there at their invitation to support their state, to make it sufficiently stable that it, it is um, sufficiently governed space into which al-Qaeda uh, cannot return. But we recognise that um, Afghanistan has never been um, a top-down, um, homogenous state of a very sort of tight nature. It's always been a sort of bottom-up state. And therefore what's really important to understand is where power flows in Afghanistan. And it flows bottom-up. It flows from the clans and the tribes up into their districts and provinces, and only to a small degree up as far as Kabul is concerned. Actually, we've been having to relearn the lessons that I think prior to 1947 were second nature to our great-uncles and grandfathers who knew the subcontinent and knew that part of the world well. We've had to relearn some of those lessons. Well, what is the future of modern warfare? And will there always be a role for the soldier? What is the future of modern warfare is a very important question to debate at the present moment. Uh, the new government, quite rightly, is having a defence and security review. And one of the first questions that's really got to be answered is, what is the character and nature of future conflict? And what are the threats that we're likely to face in the future? And there's a very active debate about this. And without being lengthy, it could be characterised, on the one hand, operations like Iraq and Afghanistan um, characterise the future. On the other hand, you could say they are aberrations um, and that it's more likely that we'll, when these things are over, um, resort to requiring capabilities for conventional type warfare, resumption of state-on-state warfare. I don't think actually you can say it's one or the other. It's somewhere between the two. But for me, it's much more that future warfare is going to be hybrid, it's going to be complex, it's going to look and feel a lot more like Basra Palace, in 2006. Well, is that because they've got all this high-tech development, really? Is well, there's no I was really the... thinking of the soldier, the mere soldier on the ground. Well, I think it's, it's going to be characterised... Well, you're right to talk about soldiers on the ground, but it's really all about people. Uh, general Sir Rupert Smith, one of my uh, distinguished predecessors as a senior general, talked about war among the people, and I think that's the right characteristic. War, the people are the environment in the way that river lines, hilltops bridges, towns, used to be the physical characteristics of conventional war in the past. So it's war amongst the people, that's right, but it's war about the people. Um, Afghanistan in particular is very much a classic counterinsurgency to win the hearts and minds of the people, to persuade them that there is a better way. And I think as we see um, pressures as a result of climate change, pressure for resources, I think it's, it's people that are going to be the critical part of this. So if Afghanistan is war among the people and about the people, uh, it's also for the people, for the people of Afghanistan and Pakistan and that region, but also for the people of this country too. Our own security is very much wrapped up in the security of that part of the world. Well, is there always going to be tension between politicians and senior military personnel? Well, there doesn't have to be. Uh, I think, um, like any situation, I think if there's a good dialogue and there's mature understanding, there doesn't have to be tension. There can be some constructive tension, and I think it's right that politicians should test military advice, and I think 
the military should um, should pressure politicians to make sure when they want something done that enough resources are provided. I think also you have to recognise um, that politicians today, on the whole, grow up in any working environment other than the military. And the military almost by definition grew up in in an environment almost exclusively military. So it's really only in the latter stage of their careers, when you're a prime minister or a president or a senior general, that you're going to come together. So there has to be a mature understanding, an agreement sometimes to disagree. But the general has to remember in a democracy that at the end of the day, once the government has decided, his duty is to get on with it. Now, if I could uh, come personally to you at this stage, Sir Richard, uh, there is another side to you. You are a convinced Christian, unabashedly so. You're patron and president of many Christian-related organisations and strongly advocate death is not the end, allied to the need to equip soldiers for the spiritual issues at stake. In other words, that there is a life after death. Is this a little unusual for the head of the British Army? It's not unusual. If you look back through military history, some very senior generals who indeed themselves have been head of the army have been very fine Christians. But I think it's, it's fair to observe that um, the history of this country has been characterised by many Christian people in, in, in many walks of life. Uh, indeed, the Christian faith has been one of the building blocks of what has traditionally made Great Britain what it is. So I don't think there's anything unusual about that. But what I would say as far as the Christian faith is concerned now, um, earlier I talked about the family nature of the army. I talked about our core values providing um, a moral baseline, a sound moral baseline from which we can go forward. But this is a question that I, I often ponder. Uh, is a sound moral baseline enough or should there be a spiritual dimension? Well, I conclude that there should be a spiritual dimension. I believe it's really important. And of course, it's belief. That's the word that's critical. Um, I think everyone needs to believe in something. And it's been my experience when I've been with soldiers in difficult circumstances, going right back, if you like, to Belfast in the early 70s. When soldiers are confronting bullets whipping around and bombs going off, and you're confronting the imminence and proximity of death, people get frightened, yes. Um, they're, they're not being human if they don't admit that. And they're probably reaching out for something bigger than themselves, something outside themselves. The motto of Sandhurst, where officers train, is serve to lead. Christ was the um, archetypal servant leader when he washed his disciples' feet on what we now know as Maundy Thursday. That was humbling himself, doing the most menial task and earning the right to lead. But of course, it's not just his life, it was his death too. When he was crucified, but he rose again, and those that believe in him um, going to his father and coming to life again, he said, believe in me and this life is yours too. And that's important, very important. Finally, we are only a small nation, the British Isles, where we always have to be drawn into conflicts ranging across the globe and forever sacrificing the flower of our youth courageous as they undoubtedly are. It would be wrong if we indulged in life-threatening operations in a sort of indulgent way, in a careless way. And I think a future government has to think very carefully about what is discretionary and what is non-discretionary. What is the UK's ambition in the future? And I think we have to accept that we are a permanent member of the UN Security Council, with a permanent seat there. We're a leading member of the G8 and the G20. 
We are the leading European member in NATO, but we can't walk away from our historical legacy. After all, which country drew up the modern state of Iraq? We did. Who drew the line between Afghanistan and Pakistan, the Durand line? We did. Very hard for us to say, no, we're going to be like the Swiss, we're going to live in peace and make clocks. I think it's hardwired into our DNA that we will be interventionist when we have to be. To be um, profligate would be wrong, but I think when our interests or our values are, are challenged, then I think the UK will be there, and also a very dependable ally of the United States. And I think our interests and theirs are very closely wrapped up together as well. Well, General Sir Richard Dannett, thank you so much for being such a fascinating interviewee on this week's Geraldine Jameson interview. Thank you indeed. Thank you, Geraldine.